Welcome to Montrose Podcast, the official podcast of Montrose School here in Medfield, Massachusetts, where girls are called to greatness. I'm your host, Mary Cahill Farella, and I'm very happy that you can join us. Maybe you're an avid supporter of Montrose, a current parent, or a friend of the school. Or maybe you're new to Montrose, an independent school for girls in grades 6 through 12, inspired by the teachings of the Catholic Church. Here, young women achieve academic excellence in a rich liberal arts environment by developing enduring habits of mind, heart, and character. Thanks for joining us as we explore topics that highlight the power of a Montrose education and how it affects the world around us. Election night is over. However you voted, and more of us did than ever before, you might be asking yourself, so now what? Where do we go from here? In this episode, we'll talk with members of the History Department at Montrose, where civics is integrated throughout the history curriculum. In this current climate of widespread division in our nation, and especially against the backdrop of this election, these teachers shed light on the critical importance of having courageous conversations and applying historical perspective. Some people think that compromise defies principle, that it's like a a diminishing of principle. But in fact, it's a principled recognition that people of different principles disagree. And we have to respect that we have to come together and take our country one step forward, literally one step at a time. That's Barbara Whitlock. And for context, she and I spoke the day before the election was called. In addition to teaching history and English, Barbara is the coordinator of humanities at Montrose. Listen in as she describes some of the courageous conversations that she's fostering in her 11th grade classroom. One of the unique things about Montrose that's really delightful is the political diversity within our school. Um, In my 11th grade AP Lang class, we literally have a microcosm of all of America. Every spectrum of political opinion, of party alignment, and um, it makes for both a unique and a wonderful challenge. And the kind of teacher idealism that I lead with with the students is, if we can't do it better in this class, our nation can't do it better. So it all hangs on us. And um, that's kind of, you know, while the whole world is figuring out this election, uh, we are trying to pave a way to doing political discussion better while building community. And that's been our central focus. And it has been challenging. It's not smooth, but it's good hard. Well, I was going to ask you what you think are some of the key lessons that we need to take away from this election experience, but you just described that, that willingness to have you know, hard conversations and to strive to hold ourselves to the expectations that we so want to have for others. But if we don't start with our own authentic conversations, then we really can't expect it of others, can we? No. And, you know, the reality of the situation is, and the numbers right now in the the vote count confirm, America is literally equally divided. So there is no way that the, um, the winning of one party leads to the elimination of the other party. We're 
we're in it for the long run and we have to work with people we disagree with all the time. And that has to be our shift in focus, not one party wins and the other party's eliminated or their ideas are eliminated. Of course, that's not true in our uh, you know, republic, in our democratic processes, but we have to live it day to day that we're not gonna eliminate or cancel those who disagree with us. We have to work with them because there's always gonna be this division in America, certainly in our lifetime. Yeah, and it, it's so true that whether we like it or not, we are all in this together. Absolutely. And of course, historically, America has always been divided, right? Look at the major compromises in our Constitution, issues like slavery, the product of huge compromise, issues like representational scheme, huge compromise, you know, the federal banking system, you know, all these things were compromises. So we have to keep compromising. That's what keeps us moving forward one incremental step at a time. Now, I understand that you're using a a courageous conversations model in your classroom. Can you walk me through what what does that look like? So in AP Lang, um, we have a civics unit. And of course, we've been doing that amidst the election. We're just kind of bringing it to a close in the coming week. And what we start with are really some of our what we call our coaching protocols at Montrose, which are oriented around practical wisdom, really helping students develop practical wisdom. So it's a combination of kind of Aristotelian principles and the good research that contemporary psychology brings us. For example, we begin with the principle that people feel emotions and that emotions need to be acknowledged non-judgmentally before you can actually move to reflection and deeper thinking. And so what I did in modeling that in my civics unit is students took surveys. How are you feeling about talking about politics in class? Have you ever, do you perceive strains between you and another classmate or among other classmates about political issues? And when I gave these surveys, you could have heard a pin drop. There was so much tension in the room. But of course, they were anonymous surveys. They were doing them individually. And they really got out all their thoughts. And I think it helped them to know that I understood the subtext to what was going on. Once we sort of recognized that, then the next thing we did in class is we created protocols. I said, so everyone's feeling some stress about talking about politics. What class norms can we develop? that make people feel safe about um, talking about politics. And they were prolific and we narrowed them down to, you know, a set of principles that we put on a poster in the room to remind each other, you know, that we discuss ideas, not people, right? That we don't gossip outside of class, right? That we ask questions to understand, not to refute, and all the sort of basic principles that establish dialogue undergirding all those principles is the recognition that we are a community and each individual in this community has human dignity and matters. And the fact that they have a political position that may be different than ours doesn't nullify them. You cannot step on their face to help other people in the world, right? The principle of human dignity is has to be consistent from A to Z. Um, The other thing we did is we read Arthur um, Brooks's book, Um, love your enemies, how um, Americans can reverse the culture of contempt. And they lapped up that book. They were desperate for understanding how to do this, to recognize that we have to be patient in these conversations and leave room for more conversations, that every conversation is a first conversation, not a last chance conversation. 
And this sort of, you could tell like what I visibly watched was a sort of tightening that generally eased. Mm -hmm. Now this bubbled up again, the tension bill bubbled up again when we got to the culminating project. The culminating project is each student picks a contemporary issue that they're very concerned about in our country. And they take on the role of a public policy expert and they present what is the state of the law on this right now? Where are the problems? And what's an incremental step we can take forward? Now they're presenting this to a mock joint session of Congress. So they have to appeal to both sides of the aisle. They also play the role of a sitting senator um, and try to represent their political views in the Q&A. And when the titles, when students were choosing the titles, a little bit of tension bubbled up. I heard about a, you know, some chatting that happened where people were talking about other students' topics with some disrespect. I addressed it head on and I heard it over the weekend. I sent an email. Let's reflect. Where are we with this? What's happened? When we came into class, I went through each of our class norms. How are we doing on this norm? How are we doing on that? And they said, Really, Mrs. Whitlock, we're at about a C minus or a D on this. I said, okay, how do we do it better? And then the exciting thing, and this has been articulated by many students, those who have very strong political convictions, what they've said is listening to a student present their arguments has given each person listening a greater appreciation for how fair-minded and balanced their view is. Looking at a title, just like looking at a social media post, we make all kinds of assumptions. Giving somebody a chance to give the fullness of their view, there was not much that they disagreed with, and they didn't see these great differences of principle or conviction that they expected. So just the gradual settling process, it's still fragile. We're in the midst of a contentious election, but it's improved. And I'm about to um, do final sort of surveys on what interventions, what strategies, what things we did in this unit help them improve their courage in conversations, their trust and respect for each other, and help them build community rather than fracture as a class. Well, that sounds like a really powerful model that, like you said, encourages keeping a conversation, you know, starting one rather than ending one. And I think your example there of starting by honoring a person's feelings puts one in that mindset of honoring, being able and open to then honor that person's position or perspective. Yeah. And one of the things in um, Arthur Brooks' book that's very compelling is the research on telling personal stories and that by sharing a personal story, it activates oxytocin, the bonding hormone between people. And that it softens the plane to actually be able to hear what someone else said. So students have practiced this in their speeches. They've used it in dialogue and discussion, and it's helped them remember that there are real people behind the issues. Often it's easy to talk about an issue in a depersonal way, but then people feel it personally because they know someone or themselves who feel affected by what someone's saying. But without sharing that personal story, without making yourself vulnerable, the other person doesn't know whom they're hurting. And knowing a real person and a real story gives them a chance to show greater compassion. And it seems to always work. 
the research is confirmed in my narrow experience with my 11th grade students. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting that we really do need to first be willing in a sense to humanize ourselves before we humanize somebody that we seek to engage with. Exactly. Well, Barbara, this is really heartening for me to hear that these kinds of conversations and that these you know, bumpy roads are being navigated uh, here at Montrose. A question many of us, I think, are asking ourselves as we tune in and tune out of, of media right now is, you know, where do we go from here? After this roller coaster we've been on for quite a while comes to its own little bit of a stop, um, what would be your answer to where we go from here? Well, you know, the the sort of steps I outlined in my webinar and in the blog post that people can read as a follow-up, that we have to acknowledge emotions. We have to be empathetic to individual emotions. That's always a first step. When we start talking about issues, we have to ask more questions than we answer. We have to prove to the person in our midst that we care to understand their perspective. I've had students who tell me, you know, my father, like we argue about politics all the time. And I said, well, have you ever just sat down and said, Dad, I want to understand the fullness of your perspective. I'm only going to ask questions to help me understand. I'm not sharing my views right now. I just want to understand. Um, and we have to remember that, you know, we're all Americans. We're free people. Freedom is messy. The fact that I have strong convictions mean that other free people can have strong convictions and that we can disagree. And that it's only in the courageous and healthy exchange of those ideas that we actually can find common ground and extend our freedom. The opposite of it is emotional reactivity, it's cancel culture, and it's a loss of freedom and afraid of our, of our social bonds. And, you know, it's much easier to, you know, we see it all the time in our national culture, but when we see it in our families, when we see it in our communities, it's particularly heartbreaking. And so we're just working hard at Montrose to not have that happen here. And the reality is that it's, it's a never ending process. Well, I'm most excited about people starting to see that it's not all about the president and that it's time to start looking at the the whole of our government, not thinking that that um, the election of, of one man or woman is going to make or break the United States. Next up is Christine Forsgaard. Again, for context, I caught up with Christine and our other two guests just a couple of days after the election was called. Christine teaches both science and history at Montrose and shares her historical perspective on this moment we're living in. So Christine, for you, what's significant about this moment in history? I think part of, of the um, the interest in this particular moment is the way people are getting their information. So many younger people are getting snapshots of, of issues and policy agendas on Snapchat and um, 
uh, and you know, maybe Facebook or Instagram, um, they're not getting a, a very full picture. And sometimes they don't have the background in order to even interpret the little bits of, of information that they are receiving. Um, newspapers and, and television news is, is also um, uh, becoming more and more um, focused on a particular um, ideology or uh, a point of view instead of just reporting the news. So it's very, very difficult to find a place where you can actually get information um, that you can use if you even have the time to look for that information. Tell me, what are lessons from history if we could take a really long view and look back to the times of, of Lincoln, for, for instance, you know, what can we keep in mind from the long view as we try to make sense of our current arduous election process? Well, I really think that that you have, you've hit on something. We think that this election is the most stressful that that has ever occurred. And I, I, we can go even farther back to, um, uh, to 1800, where there was, where there there have been so many very contentious um, elections, elections that have been thrown into 1824 into the House of Representatives, um, and and I, so I think having that long view, um, even as an older person who's who's seen so many elections, um, myself. Um, the, the the good news is that there have been horrible situations. Um, 1800 with with um, Jefferson and Burr and they're fighting over who you know should be um, president and who should be vice president and that results in an amendment being made shortly thereafter. Um, you mentioned Lincoln and that election five candidates and um, and you split um, and and ultimately wind up with it with a civil war. Um, so there there are very very difficult times, but ultimately we get back to um, the Constitution, and that's the, the, the thing that, that kind of holds us all together and reminds us um, about where we can go to look for solutions. Now, you teach AP government. How do you integrate civics into your curriculum, and, and what are you aiming at when you do that? Well, so with with AP government, um, so much of it is civics. Um, we just finished reading the the Constitution, and we actually read it in class. Um, and I would ask questions so that students were not only letting the words go into their eyes and and, and their ears, but um, have it resonate. You know, what these different words, what what they meant, and how they they played out on um, on the ground. Um, today we were um, we were reading Brutus one. Uh, so it's an anti-federalist paper um, reflecting on whether it's a good idea or a bad idea to ratify the Constitution. Um, and, and that, I think, was really helpful. So, so often people read the Federalist Papers, but they don't read carefully enough the anti-federalist papers, the people who were the concerns that people had about even ratifying the Constitution in the first place. And you find some of those concerns resonating in our discussions today. So that's one of the things that we do, and it really gets students to understand that, this, that we, we have the same kinds of issues 
um, were uh, that we're facing today were faced hundreds of, of years ago. We'll also be, uh, you know, looking at um, political parties and um, and we'll, one of the, the projects that students will do, they will create a political party, and um, it has to. It can't be Republicans or Democrats. They're going to have to find an issue and have their political party based on that issue and then run a candidate and go through the process and just to see how difficult it is to actually um, pull off any kind of an election, um, even a local election. We do a lot of role playing um, that, that helps students to put themselves in the shoes of people who have to make decisions about compromising or not compromising, um, both the, the AP U.S. class and my AP government class um, have had um, constitutional convention um, uh, role plays that were very successful. And this year we've introduced um, Harvard case studies where they are looking at different issues in um, U.S. history. So we have have um, already completed um, one on, on James Madison and the federal negative, and we'll do one on um, Martin Luther King um, and, um, and another one, well, well, we'll do a number of them um, uh, throughout the year. So there are lots of, of ways where students are able to put themselves into a situation where they are surrounded by the complexity of the situation and they have to figure out what they would do. Now let's hear from Mary Aiden Hanrahan, who in her role as middle school history teacher is shepherding her eighth grade civics class through this historical moment. What has it been like to teach civics to eighth graders amidst this, this background of, you know, this election season? Yeah, um, that's a great question. It's been very exciting um, and of course presents its own unique sets of challenges and um, what's kind of been interesting is that the, the challenges that it's brought um, haven't exactly been the ones that I was expecting. I was expecting to kind of have to deal with a lot of contentious viewpoints, um, sort out perhaps some hurt feelings, help girls work through um, how to have difficult conversations with opposing viewpoints. Um, and what I've actually been surprised to find is that that part comes pretty easily um, I think, you know, in eighth grade, they are just kind of at the beginning of their civic and their political knowledge. So really, the larger challenge has been kind of like establishing a bedrock of information and understanding. Um, and they're really approaching politics, um, you know, with strong relationships with one another, prior to really knowing anything about one another's political opinions or the political opinions of their families, um, which has been really interesting and really great because we start from a place of friendship with one another, respect for one another, um, being able to have conversations um, about topics that aren't really controversial in a way to really practice respectful dialogue. Um, and then as they begin to learn more and more this year about um, politics, about, um, you know, why is our government structured the way it is? What are the, the values and the philosophies that underpin it? Um, how is our government structured? Why do we have political parties? What is the role of political parties? Um, how does the election work? What's an electoral college? Um, as they learn these things, they are approaching it from a position of really having strong relationships with one another first and um, relying on those strong relationships to kind of be the bedrock of 
um, civil conversation. Right. Um, the problem is going to be then, you know, keeping that mindset as they grow and they begin to have these conversations on kind of a wider field and they begin to interact with people who are strangers to them or who it's easy to kind of put in a box or demonize as, you know, the other side of the aisle, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, and to kind of maintain the foundation that we're building here in terms of how to have a courageous conversation, how to have a respectful dialogue, um, how to first see your common ground with one another, um, how to first see the good intentions that one another may have before um, just jumping to kind of the demonization of the other side. Yeah. Well, we've talked with Barbara Whitlock about having these courageous conversations with her 11th graders, but it occurs Mm -hmm. to me that your work building the foundations, as you've said, at the middle school level really builds the scaffolding in so that these girls are developing the habits they need to have, to, to be able to have conversations and then to just grow in that ability as they go through the ranks at Montrose. Yeah, that's definitely right. And I think um, that was a lot of the thought process behind putting the civics curriculum into the eighth grade um, is, you know, to give students the opportunity, first of all, to learn about these topics um, and gain kind of that like solid scaffolding of information, first and foremost, Um, and then also to give them really the practice with having these types of conversations starting younger. Um, I know eighth grade, I think, is the perfect time to do these things because they're the leaders in the middle school. Um, They're really looking just over the edge into, um, you know, their teenage years and growing through high school, which is going to be a time of great growth and um, much more independence for them. So to start to hone these skills of conversation um, and recognizing um, dignity in each other and respectful conversation, I think really eighth grade is the time to start. Um, And then hopefully we can just kind of continue to build on these skills throughout high school. Yeah. Well, you know, as we go forward as as a school and as a society, it also seems like a real opportunity that you get to walk these eighth graders through an inauguration. Absolutely. Um, You know, and I had some really good questions today in class. A lot of them were saying, well, I don't really know. Like, is is so is Trump no longer our president? Is is Biden our president today? Why do we have to wait until January? Um, And so it's just so much more engaging for them when they see it in the world around them every day. Um, You know, I I think history in general as a subject kind of gets a bad reputation, in my opinion, a very unearned reputation um, that it's kind of like, why should we care about this? You know, it's ancient history. It's in the past. It doesn't matter. Um, And I always really try to emphasize in all my history classes that history is extremely important because it's the context for the world all around us. Um, And that logical bridge in civics is, Um, much easier to make because they see the direct implication. You know, even when we're studying ancient philosophers or the American Revolution, they understand, oh, we're doing this so that we can understand the government as it exists today, because we are going to be citizens. We are citizens, and soon we're going to be of age to vote, and we're going to be participating in this government, and we really need to understand it. What's your hope for your eighth graders now when they look back at this time in their lives, say four years from now, they're well into their high school years. What's your hope as they look back on this era? Yeah, I would say that I have two main hopes. And the first is that they really feel like they've learned to be um, deliberative thinkers. Um, I think, you know, it's really easy to jump to conclusions. I think social media and kind of like quick 
um, television media encourages really quick decision making. Um, I think kind of the rhetoric surrounding, um, you know, putting people in boxes depending on their identity or their political opinions encourages people to jump to conclusions um, and make assumptions, which can can really lead to kind of tense relationships. So I'm hoping that they feel like they've practiced the skills of deliberative thinking and really trying to um, seek out all the information, make an informed choice, reflect on what really is the truth. Um, so that's my first goal. My second goal is kind of um, back to what we were talking about towards the beginning of this conversation regarding having conversations with one another um, and approaching conversations with people who have different opinions from them um, in a way that seeks to understand common ground um, and build bridges rather than just kind of vilify and demonize. The founding fathers weren't just setting it up for people to participate in kind of passively 250 years from now, but they're as you know, citizens, voters, residents of the country are still engaging in that project. And that's why it's so important to know our history and bring it to our present. Our last guest for this episode is Laura Michelle. And again, we spoke just a few days after the election was called. Laura teaches both American history and Western civilization at Montrose. Well, tell us just briefly about your teaching philosophy. Well, I'm coming to teaching and to Montrose from a PhD in American history. So my teaching philosophy largely revolves around doing, um, becoming a historian. You don't need a PhD to do it. It's about engaging with the primary sources and engaging with the secondary sources and just finding that confidence in your own historical voice to recognize that history isn't about memorizing dates and names, though sometimes I do ask my students to do that. Um, and it's not about knowing that one right answer to a specific question, but being able to interpret and analyze and synthesize and figure out what's meaningful to you and what speaks to you. And I think that it's maybe a little more obvious in American history, but the same goes for Western civilization, learning to use your voice and engage with the variety of opinions and viewpoints that are out there is part of just good citizenship. Most definitely. Um, I've heard that you've created a mock simulation for one of your classes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so as we were approaching the Constitutional Convention in the AP U.S. History class, we read about it in the textbook, but I thought that a, a better way for students to really you know, understand what was going on would be to adopt the role of someone who was at the Constitutional Convention. And actually, for the purposes of American history, I invited students to also adopt roles of people who weren't at the Constitutional Convention. So that included uh, Massachusetts's own Samuel Adams, who didn't think that a centralized government was a good idea, so didn't participate, though he did help with the ratification later on. And students represented the viewpoints and perspectives of African Americans or the indigenous population or women. And that helped contextualize what was going on in the convention, what kinds of issues they were up against and how it impacted everyone living in the United States in addition to reflecting the viewpoints of those who actually attended 
the convention in Philadelphia. Neat. That sounds like a really powerful way of making it come to life. Yeah, and I think we hit upon some themes that became evident right away that it's the delegates were facing this question of how do we live up to the revolutionary rhetoric and these ideals for which we just fought a war, for which we just separated from Britain versus the realities of having to govern a nation. We're in massive amounts of debt. Um, we need a viable economy. We need to be respected on the world stage. And what are those differences and what compromises do people come to and what does that mean for us now? We happen to do it in one section of my AP class. We were doing it and debating you know, the uh, electoral college and it was on election day. So it was a very timely <laughs> conversation. And I hope that when they're then engaging with politics today and thinking about, you know, they'll be voting in the next election, um, how they're engaging as an American citizen, that they remember back to how things were formed and that this, this narrative of, of America was something that was, you know, created by real people. Uh, in the next class, we read Washington's farewell address and talked about the ways in which that experiment that Washington talks about is still ongoing, that the founding fathers knew they were doing something unprecedented and they wanted people as citizens to be part of that. I'm your host, Mary Cahill Farella, and I'd like to thank our special guests from the Montrose History Department, Barbara Whitlock, Christine Forsgaard, Mary Aiden Hanrahan, and Laura Michelle, for joining us for this important and timely conversation. Please visit MontroseSchool.org and click on Montrose Podcast to access resources related to this episode. Until next time, stay engaged, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Montrose Podcast. Please subscribe so that you'll be the first to know about future episodes and share the podcast with your friends and family. If you'd like to donate to Montrose Podcast, your gift will go directly to tuition assistance, a critical part of our mission to keep a Montrose education accessible. Thank you for doing your part to plant the seeds of lifelong Montrose friendships and ensure that each Montrose graduate takes with her a life compass to navigate the challenges beyond Montrose and seize opportunities to shape our changing world.